I don't want a pickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello everybody and welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast episode 107. Is that right? No idea. I think that's right. Anyway, coming to you from Northern Colorado, which is also Moto One Podcast Network Studios Suite A. And guess what, everybody? We fucking finally had one of our 300 days of sunshine that we get every year here in Northern Colorado. Holy crap. In fact, this whole week has been awesome. I've been out riding this whole week. I've been riding the Goldwing. It's been awesome. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what the show's going to be about. You know what? I need to introduce everybody. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. You. And we have a special guest on this week. We've got Oli uh, from... Now, it's the Moto Experience now, and it used to be Moto Vibes. There was a name change at some point? Yeah. Uh, the Moto Experience kind of sounded a little bit better, and uh, we ended up shortening it to the Moto EXP because nobody could ever spell experience. So. Ah, I see. Yeah. Well, you know, that <laughs> that uh, that SE is important, right? Or SEO. Yeah. Experience is a tricky word on a phone keyboard. It can be. Yeah, okay, the Moto XP. Okay, I, did, I guess I didn't catch on to that last bit, so three changes. But anyway, so we've got Oli here, which, you know, I have to admit, I was saying Ollie forever. Um, <laughs> Everybody does, everybody does. Right, so uh, you are a, well, I was about to say MSF instructor, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. But you're you're a training and safety instructor in Sacramento, so you were just talking to us about how that breaks down. Most of us across the country just deal with the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, but you guys in California have a little bit of a special situation. Yeah, so we got a couple different things. So the California Motorcycle Safety Program, uh, which is um, overseen by the California Highway Patrol, and the program that we teach out of is Total Control Training and uh, totalcontroltraining.net, and we are just individual instructors teaching those those things from total control under the guideline of the California Highway Patrol. Sweet. So you do a mixture of just regular classes, you know, people getting their their uh, their license, and then you know more advanced classes on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. How many different levels do you teach? Uh, I personally teach two plus um, private training, just depending on that extra time. And that's the uh, beginner rider course, the VRC, or um, and the IRC, the intermediate riding course. Okay, I still haven't taken the the uh, the you know, the BRC two or whatever you want to call it, the, the intermediate level mm-hmm. ones. Uh, I do a lot of practice on my own. Um, I always make sure, like, all right. You know, find spots to do emergency braking. I go into parking lots, try to do slow maneuvers, all that kind of stuff on my own. But one reason I really wanted to have you on the show and talk to you is I thought we could come up with some some resources for people if they maybe don't have time to go take a whole program. Kind of what are some techniques to 
to practice on their own. I mean, we'll get more into that later. Like right now, I want to get a little bit more into to you. Like you said, you teach a uh, total control, which some people may have heard of, some people haven't. That's um, that's it's nationwide, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, they're expanding, you know, throughout uh, all different parts of the world. Uh, people can find more information now at totalcontroltraining.net. They give all the different classes, the breakdown of those classes, and um, they're all over the place. So it really just comes down to when you can schedule a beginner, uh, intermediate, advanced, or even some of the track clinics that they offer. Cool. So how long have you been, have you been an instructor? Oh, I think it's gone about five, maybe six years, somewhere around there. Five or six years. What was, what were the, uh, the, the qualifications to, to be a coach? Like what'd you kind of go through to, to do that? There are a couple things. Um, I can pull up some stuff. So instructor training, it's a pretty intense seven day training. Um, about a six-hour training course that you have to be uh, that you must complete for even just the consideration to teach uh, at a at a CMSB site. And um, generally, you'd have like a sponsor. So for me, the the sponsor would be Harley Davidson. And uh, I guess some of the formalities would be a, a cleaning a clean driving record, um, about twelve thousand miles at least minimum of riding experience. I, I, I remember, I think. Most everybody had about 30,000 miles at that point when I was going through it. And uh, you got to have a high school diploma or some form of a GED. Um, I can't think there's anything else. Had to have an operating street legal motorcycle. And uh, it always helped to have some teaching background. So for me, I've, I've been teaching martial arts and other forms of community uh, programs throughout my neighborhood. So. That definitely helped me out going through speaking in front of people and getting people's attention and talking to them like normal human beings as well. Okay. Now we, we were talking before we started recording how I've, uh, I've gone through a program very similar to the basic class that you teach. A lot of listeners of the show have, have gone through those episodes and it was, well, really it was a lot of me complaining about the street 500 is really what it was. Do you, do you guys still use those for the for the basic courses there? That we do. The Harley Davidson Street 500 motorcycle. Man, I I think I did that peanut exercise just pretty much just I at least thirty percent of the whole thing. I was just scraping those ridiculous bars they put on them just all across the place. Um, so. The thing about that class was I'd already been riding for a, you know over a decade, and then I had to because a weird thing I'm not a U.S. citizen. I changed states, but I also simultaneously lost my green card and my passport in my move from Indiana to Colorado. And Whoa. since I didn't have supporting documents, they just completely when I took all all I had was my Indiana driver's license. I go into the Colorado BMV and they're like, so we're basically just going to cut this up and you need to start again from scratch, which was not super cool. Uh, yeah. So I had to redo everything. And, um, and you know, I was one of the last people, me and I think Dr. Mike are the only two people we know that, 
you know, they're under the age of 50, whatever, that went and still got their motorcycle license originally with just a dude following you on a bike or in a car at the BMV. So, ah, this, okay. so this was my first time doing a official sort of motorcycle classroom situation. So I took notes <laughs> so I could report back to the show. And uh, it was it was a weird experience being the only person in there that kind of knew what was going on. And, and I had to bite my tongue so hard not to talk over the instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I managed to because I, I was quickly like, you know, I'm going to be singled out as, you know, the guy that thinks he's got all the answers. Like, I just I need to I need to just get through this politely became my mind frame. Not that I thought that I was being taught anything incorrect. I don't think I was. It was just tough to to be that guy. Right. But knowing you know what I knew, I was just hearing crazy stuff all around the room. So, you know, since you do this every weekend, right? Uh I I wanted to ask you, what are some of the craziest uh I don't even know what the word is, just some of the, the most incorrect things you've heard students say. You know, it's kinda like day one, you know, motorcycle myths just think you know, we all know those people that think, oh, well you you should only use the rear brake, right? And all these, mm-hmm. but are there any like even crazier ones that you've heard from people coming in? Um, man, I'd probably say recently we had we had a couple people uh, mention that somebody told them they had to wear a half shell helmet, um, and that was like the only thing that they were allowed to wear. Uh, some people come in joking, but then some people don't come in joking, saying that. You know, they, they're supposed to have a vest for the class. Um, really, I kind of, there's a whole number of things, and I'm sure that uh, at this point it just sounds so simple to me or it sounds like so normal to me that unless I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a new one. That's a good one. Right. I think, um, what was it? Um, there was one guy that uh, in my class that claimed he dropped his bike because of the camber of the road. Is that a stop okay. sign and that and that cost him to to drop his Harley? That was a good one. I had another guy uh, in my class complain that um, he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to handle the uh, the turn the single sided turn signal because he was more okay. used to the the left and right buttons on his Harley, and that was a big yeah. issue for him. Okay, and, and at a certain point, someone had to explain to him if you can't overcome this, there's not a lot of confidence that you can overcome any unusual traffic situations. Sure. So sure. <laughs> just get I used to it. I actually kind of going through that point. Probably um, the hill toe shifter. So we had, you know, we have people who come in who already ride, and uh, they might ride a, a touring bike or something with a heel toe shifter. And they jump on those training bikes and they don't know how to shift. Or they forgot how to actually shift. Right. That's yeah. Yeah, the yeah, they may have been someone that said that one too. Um Okay. Um are there any uh like real standout standout crazy moments? We had a girl manage to flip one of those street five hundreds in our class, which was amazing for wow. so many re- Oh yeah. 
That's impressive. That's hard. <laughs> I know. She did though. She flipped it. It um it was great too cuz uh uh I mean she was okay, but of course the first thing was she smacked her face into the ground. She was wearing a full face helmet. You know, one of three of us that was. I think she was the mm-hmm. daughter of one of the mechanics at the dealership. Um and she was doing really well. I probably finished kind of first in the class and she finished second. She was, she was good. And, um, she was going around a turn just, uh, for some reason, all of a sudden got a lot braver than she had been on past, you know, uh, exercises. And she just really leaned in, but she, she somehow managed to tuck the front wheel at like 18 miles an hour. <laughs> Wow! And then those crazy crash bars that they put on the test bikes that caught and then it bounced and like the bike, she went underneath the bike. The bike went over her. It was, it was a crazy thing. So it was only 18 miles an hour, but man, there was a a big old scratch right where, you know, there, there would have been a a pencil mark on the, on the road made by her jaw. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And then that was a teachable moment to everyone else. Like, hey, you guys wearing the class uh, um, provided half helmets, check it out. Uh, anyway, um, so you uh, you teach these classes. You do that most weekends? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then um, every once in a while, we try to we're trying to do once a month the intermediate riding training for those students who want to come back and refresh their skills or gain just a little bit more on their motorcycle rather than the training bike. I've I've thought about it myself, like looking into what it would take to to become an instructor in all the classes because I've heard it's a pretty legit side gig. It's awesome. I mean, um, you know the. There's there's uh, the dollar amount side of it, and then there's also the I guess the the student side where you get to really help somebody out that uh, ends up becoming kind of lifelong friends. I mean, we I have students from five years ago that I still talk to and go on rides with, so it's pretty cool. Definitely rewarding. Right on. Now in the second in the second level classes, you bring your own bike, right? It's preferred. Uh, we do have the option of renting one of the street 500, but I've had a couple of students gone through the course at this point with that training bike. And every time, I mean, a good 90% of the time they wish they would have done it on their bike because you almost have to redo everything on your bike at the end of the day. I see. Um, Is there a particular bike or style of bike that people tend to do better on? Uh, Not really. I mean, at uh, at a certain point, um, I think the biggest challenge, if anything, is just the mindset of doing training on your motorcycle, like your personal motorcycle. And nobody wants to drop their bike. I mean, it's the nature of the game when it when it comes down to it, and you're practicing and you're doing some of these lower speed maneuvers. And uh, for some people, they can accept that early on, and others get pretty frustrated when they do drop their bike and are upset that they took additional training. Yeah. One thing that's made me a little hesitant about signing up for one of these classes is normally I'm riding a sport bike. So right now I've got mm-hmm. a, uh, a Honda Superhawk, And I remember after I took my MSF class, 
like two days later, I went back to that parking lot and I was like, okay, I need to see if I can do the box on the super Hawk. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I did not, I mean, I knew it was going to be a little trickier with, you know, the wheelbase and the rake angle on that bike. And it was, yeah. it was a little tricky to get that accomplished. So I've kind of thought like, I'd love to do this, but I wish I had a more standard bike. Like, you know, like I wanted uh, like an NC 700, you know, <laughs> something just the most ordinary middle of the road bike to do it with. But uh, do people just pretty much manage to do it with, um, with sport bikes then even? Um, for the most part, uh, being at the, the Harley location, you primarily get people riding their touring bike and, uh, adventure touring bike occasionally we'll get maybe two to three people riding a sport bike in the class and uh i'd say both parties get get a lot out of it just depending on how much they want to put into it you know what i mean yeah yeah i guess it's a little different it's 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 not a uh a situation where people are super desperate to pass to get their license at that point they're there just to just to learn they're there just because they want to be there yeah and that's that's like a huge factor, right? When you have to go through the training to get your endorsement or to um, waive the DMV riding test versus I want to gain a little bit more skill on my own, on my own time. Not, not thinking that I have to, but that I want to. Okay. So, um, I think what we're going to do right now is depart from this real quick to do our best worst bike in the world segment, which is what most of the listeners are here for. And then after that, we're going to come back with a segment on sort of not waking your bike up for spring, but waking yourself up for spring to get ready riding. And we sounds like we have the right guy on the show today for that job. So, Without any further ado, here's our disclaimer that we give every week before the Best Worst Bike in the World segment. So, if you haven't heard the show before, here's the rules. Each week, we each pick a different motorcycle, alternating who has best bike and who has worst bike. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. Please remember... That it's just a fun way to look at two different motorcycles you might not normally take a second look at. Some people decide to write angry emails or leave poor reviews (laughs) of the show because we slammed their favorite bike. If that's the case, just calm down, just raise your fingers off the keyboard for a moment, and remember that... Article 17-65103 of the California Highway Code clearly states that there is no crying in motorcycles. Sweet, you have worst bike in the world this week. I do. Excellent. Just so you know, at least sometimes we have been known to get (laughs) the order wrong. So, are you ready to reveal this week's worst bike in the world? I am. All right. And the worst bike in the world this week is? The 1971 Norton Commando High Rider. Wait, the High Rider? This is a variant I'm unaware of. Oh, this is... Oh, dear. Wow. There we go. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So, this is another example of... 
the British motorcycle industry going into steep decline. Uh, this is a a British version of the Ducati Indiana, I guess. This is yeah. this. It's like an XS XS six fifty. Yeah, fuck the Ducati Indiana, and then we get this. Wow, because this is this looks like it shares no parts with a regular Norton Commando. Maybe it's the same frame. Is this the same motor? I, uh. It's the same frame. It's the same motor. It's the same forks. They just butchered every styling element of it to make it into a heavy air quotes chopper. Oli, are you able to Google a picture of this thing? Yeah, what was it called again? The Norton Commando High Rider. If this you had, yeah, if, if you had told me that this was not a production motorcycle, this was a weird Japanese custom build. I would one hundred percent believe you. There are definitely Bosuzoku elements present here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is right around the time when everyone was consolidating, everyone was getting bought out, and this was when Norton got bought out by um Triumph? No. Uh some what was his name? Dennis Poor, the the manganese bronze tycoon, yeah. and this is this is right around the t- this is very well, this is around the same time as the um, as the Triumph Bonneville seven fifty. Right. This is when everything was kind of getting Americanized, whereas Triumph kind of went this weird sort of turning a classic British bike into more of a Japanese bike to appeal to Americans. Yeah. And Norton decided we're just going to go straight chopper culture while understanding nothing about chopper culture. Clearly. (laughs) This is 1975. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, wow, this is difficult to talk about because it's just so breathtaking in a super weird way (laughs) it's like i have to look away from it to say anything about it it mm, it doesn't pull any punches the this this choice of handlebars is something else like this is a bike that basically comes stock with ape hangers yep like these may be shoulder height I mean, I need to find a picture of someone riding one, though it appears no one was ever caught dead riding one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, here's, here's, well, no, the bike's not in motion. I see a picture of someone standing over one. Okay. Or standing, no, he's standing next to it. There's still not, a, I still haven't found a picture of someone riding one. That's, that's new. I, that, I haven't come across this situation before. So, Wow. Wow. Um geez. So okay. So it's 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 in, mo- in many ways a normal Norton Commando, which is a bike that plenty of people have loved for ages and ages. And around this time, it, I I have to dig up some some facts on this later on, maybe just try to add them into the notes or something, but this is when a bunch of British bike companies 
kind of all formed into one super company to avoid bankruptcy. It was kind of a bit of a British Leyland situation, but with all the bikes. Yeah. And I can't remember. They just kind of picked two of the company names and put a dash in between them. And that's when, you know, and ideas got desperate. And as you stated, with the CB750 doing all sorts of very Honda Kawasaki sort of things, Norton decided to become a sportster. Um, But this is the classic uh, CB750 problem. It looks like they haven't improved the bike at all, like mechanically, right? That was the problem with the, with the, not CB750, the, um, the Bonneville 750. Yeah. All they did was punch it out and change things cosmetically. They didn't mechanically improve the bike, except for that one version with the four valve heads that was really cool, those race heads that they put on it for that special edition. But otherwise, this is this is just the same rubbish old British bike. These brakes will be terrible. The suspension is going to be terrible. Like... They could say, sure, Americans want this giant seat to put curls on the back, but like, how about you update the rear suspension so it'll actually take the weight of said girls? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly with these handlebars, they were envisioning a taller person riding the bike, one would assume. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, ooh. I don't, I don't know, know, you guys. It's kind of growing on it's growing. <laughs> I mean, as uh, it also this bike, it, it I I said it didn't pull any punches, but I'm actually now seeing a lot of missed opportunities because it has what again can only be described as a stock Bosuzoku seat. Like they could have put some something some cool uh, designs in the leather. They could have, they could have built the light into the back of the seat or something. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's how I would describe this bike. Here's how I see it. You know, the company is, is in dire straits. You have a lot of problems going on. You're running out of money. You haven't really updated any of your technology or any of your bikes in a long time. And it's getting really dire. And then you come out with this. It's similar to like you and your band driving 200 miles in the van to get to a show. And the drummer just forgot to pack all the amps. And you have like no equipment. (laughs) And you're totally fucked. And then... You all come out to the van, and he's like, okay, guys, I know this is bad, and we're in a lot of trouble, but I filled the van with balloons! (laughs) 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 That's kind of the situation. It's like, how how does this help us? What what is wrong with you? That's what I feel this bike is as as a solution to Norton's problems. It's... It's just so far off the mark and not understanding what's going on at all. I mean, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Everyone knows that what they needed to do was come up with new bikes that had more reliable technology and better performance. And instead, they just went for gimmick after gimmick. And I, 
I had never seen this one before. Uh, yeah, I mean... But we only made the dyes 30 years ago. They're still good for another 100 years. Right. <laughs> it's like... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, who would who, you know? It's 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 just surprising that Fake Norton didn't decide to do a reissue of this name, right? <laughs> okay, so no, I think there was a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so yeah, from from the the Amel carburetors to the fairly low, fairly low horsepower. Um, well, sixty horsepower for eight hundred twenty eight cc's. Actually, that's pretty good for the time. Um, but yeah, only a four speed. Like, how is this? How is this going to take two people down the road to to cruise? I I don't know. I'm, uh, and you know what? Uh, two and a half thousand dollars for 1975, kind of on the pricey side. Yeah, believe it or not. So let's uh, let's move past this one and go to best bike in the world this week, okay? Okay. Well, I know I'll say it. I'll say it. I'll I'll say first before that uh, Norton Commando High Rider, worst bike in the world this week, but still better than a car. Okay. Now, the best bike in the world this week. It is the 1975 also Honda. GL one thousand Goldwing. Oh come on! I had to because, of course, everyone knows I just bought an old Goldwing last week, and I was reading into it. Of course, just like what do I not know about these things yet? Right now, this is like the fourth time we've picked the Goldwing as like the best or worst bike in the world this week because there's so many different Goldwings, right? It's a bike that really has been part of the culture for so long. It's it's one of those words, those motorcycle words that the public knows. I, it kind of dawned on me, right? The public knows the word crotch rocket. The public knows the word Harley or hog. They know the word ninja, and most of them over 30 know the name Goldwing. Right. So the original GL1000, here's the thing. We think about there being like four different Goldwings. It turns out there's like 20 different Goldwings. We think about the Goldwing as Honda puts it out and then doesn't change it. And really what I've discovered is that the Goldwing really never goes more than two or three years without being upgraded in some way. Honda just doesn't make a lot of fanfare about it. It's a little strange, which is in sharp contrast to Harley, who will just claim that they have entirely new models based on new paint. But (laughs) so in 1975... This was about $2,800, which was smack dab in the center of the market for big cruisers. This bike was supposed to be Honda's kind of... Well, originally people thought that Honda needed a bike to rival the the Z1, right? Because Honda comes out with the CB750... You know, everyone's super impressed. Then Kawasaki counters with the the Z900 or the Z1. And everyone's like, ooh, Honda, are you just going to take that? Are you just going to let Kawasaki say that to you? So Honda's developing the Goldwing quietly in the background. 
And everyone thinks it's going to be just another sport bike or the, or, or this 1975 version of a sport bike, right? And Honda does something that's typically Honda, which is Honda's, you might think you're playing the same game Honda is, but Honda's three chess moves ahead of everyone else all the time. And Honda does this amazing thing time and time again throughout history. They did this with the CB350 and the 750. They did this with the original Super Hawk. They did this with the the Super Cub. Honda was just changes the game with the models and invented so many segments of the market. And the Goldwing, like I said, everyone thought was going to be a crazy superbike. And it really just became its own thing and invented, you know, the sort of super bagger kind of bike, right? Mm-hmm. There are lots of Harleys with a lot of bells and whistles, but this is the bike that really started giving us excess. Well, this is also at a time when there was, you know, a lot of that kind of like the Widowmaker era was kind of beginning. But at the same time, this is essentially the same time that this is between, you know, Suzuki releasing the Water Buffalo and before they released the um, the RE5. So Suzuki hadn't even give, given up on large two-strokes yet. So this was kind of at a weird time where you could really do something off the wall as a major part of your product line still. Right. So when Honda was developing the Goldwing, the first thing they did and Honda probably does this for very for a lot of their different programs, but Honda has kind of released a lot of information about this one, which is very un-Honda to do. But during this time, they were making a prototype bike, and they did make a prototype bike, and it was very similar to what ended up being the Goldwing. But it was just an exercise to see what was possible in this category. So... Sergio Honda decided that it would be a flat four, but for the prototype, they did originally make it a flat six at one, 1.6 liters. Oh, really? Yes. And it was, it was nuts. It was always shaft drive from the beginning and it had you know just everything crazy that it could possibly have. And, it was called like the M001 or the MK1 or something. It had some sort of secret code name, but they all started calling it the King. And then as the project grew and grew and the bike became more and more ridiculous, like this prototype bike was 110 horsepower, apparently. Uh, it became known as the King of Kings to Honda employees. And yeah, the frame was remarkably similar to what ended up being the Goldwing frame. So they put this bike out, they kind of scale, they, they build this ridiculous thing and they go, okay, let's scale it down to be ultra reliable, right? We've, we've, here's what we can do. Let's take it down. And they just kept refining it and refining it and refining it. Cause this project started right after they finished the CB 750. I mean, this was, this was five, six years in the works. Mm-hmm. So they release it to the public and immediately everyone's super confused because they're like, why is it so big and heavy? And why does it look kind of weird? This doesn't look like we expected it to look. 
But it turned out that Honda had guessed what everybody wanted, even when they didn't know that they wanted this bike. Because at the time, what was a great selling bike? Well, the the Harley, um, you know, FLH bikes, right? You know, your Electroglides and whatever. So Honda went, oh, Americans want a 650-pound bike. We can build a 650-pound bike, and we'll give it more power, and we'll make it smoother and whatever. So they kind of had to – it was a little bit of a pill wrapped in bacon, <laughs> right? Everyone thought they were going to put out this super bike, but it was really just a better cruiser. So the bike comes out. It's uh, 75 to 80 horsepower roughly, somewhere in there at 7,800. Well, I think it was about 8,000 RPMs, the red line. Um, it's got 60 foot-pounds of torque about its shaft drive. It's got all the things that bikes can have, basically. Big five-gallon tank. It gets good mileage for the time and all of that. And it's the Goldwing. But then it doesn't take them very long to start fucking with it. So by 1978, they've changed the cosmetics a little bit. They've retuned the power. They've added grease nipples to the splines and the sh- and the shaft drive to make it even easier to maintenance. They've um, you know changed out some turn signals and things. They've put on the Comstar wheels rather than the wire wheels to make it even lower maintenance, really, and more reliable. And this is when they all just start basically coming with the big Vetter fairings on them. Because originally it was a naked bike. And then it seems that they had a setup where Honda was going to sell it with Honda fairings. But something went wrong before the release of the bike. Anyway, they just struck up a deal with Vetter. So all the original GL1000s that have fairings basically have Vetter fairings. And that's not factory original, but kind of considered stock because that was really the only option. So, in 78, they add these gauges to the tank. So, they had, they had a fuel gauge, which was a big deal in 1978, to have a, a, a fuel gauge. There's a uh, there's an amp meter, oh, sorry, a volt meter, right, on your, on your dash. There's a temperature uh, meter. Um, you know, it's got the regular trip and everything. So this is, so in the original GL 1000, this is where they start loading on shit, right? And then on top of that, the vendor fairing comes with options for a radio, right? You can attach, um, just an AM FM radio, a CB radio. They started coming with helmet communication systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like back in the seventies, like I have a GL 1000 helmet with fucking speakers built into it. That's crazy, right? Like that shouldn't be a thing, but people were talking to each other on GL one thousands. This is like so much more than we realize started with the original Goldwing. Is the point now? I can attest to uh, uh, many of these things because I just bought one. You kind of moved it around a little bit, but I can tell you that even though it's 650 pounds and then it's got another at least 100 pounds of touring gear all over it, and then my fat ass, we're over 1,000 pounds going down the road probably. Now, the 1978 brakes, frankly, are terrifying. The suspension (laughs) isn't much better. But I'll tell you, I've ridden very few bikes that tip in as well. 
it doesn't really come out of those corners as well as other bikes, but it sure tips in real nice. And the, it's it's kind of like riding a jet ski down the road. Okay. Because it's a bike from the 70s, right? And you've got this big fairing, and you're just like the steering's, of course, vague and everything. But the engine really, truly is a super smooth work of art. At 55 miles an hour in fifth gear, it's almost like you can't tell if the bike is turned on or not. It's it really is super smooth. And because it's the uh the opposed engine and the shaft drive coming out of the back of the engine going straight to the back wheel, it gives very Moto Guzzi like power. Okay. And this is part of the over engineering of this bike. Like the the way that the that the uh transmission uh, is attached to the shaft drive. It smooths out the power. It's almost kind of hard to make the bike jerk. You really just have to dump it into like down a gear to jerk the bike. It, it smooths out the power for you. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So in general, you know, this, you know, we can we can say all these things that it started, but here's the last thing I'm going to say about this bike. Between 1975 and the end of 1979, they sold 97,000 Goldwings. So let's put that in perspective. Last year, Ducati sold about 50,000 motorcycles. Wow. So. It, from 1975 to 1979, Honda was selling about 54 Goldwings a day, whereas Ducati, for you know, last year as an entire company was barely over 140. So, just the Goldwing in the 70s was almost then approaching half of Ducati today. Yeah, those are kind of those are like Suzuki Jixer numbers. Right. That's that's a big deal. And especially for for a large touring bike. And their flagship product, right? Cuz I want to say that they sold somewhere around 150 50,000 CB350s during almost those exact years. Mm-hmm. Maybe 200,000 at tops. So to comparatively sell that many of your flagship, we're talking about a company having a runaway success with its flagship that's that we've only really seen since like BMW with the uh, the GS1200. Right, mm-hmm. where their flagship just really becomes synonymous with the brand. That's like the most common bike that they sell. I mean, I'm sure BMW sells more of something else that's cheaper, but you hardly hear about it. So, you know, the Goldwing was has been kind of. Oh, also, a lot of people constantly forget the Goldwing designed and manufactured 100% in America. Always has been. Well, I'm sure over the years with some of the other Goldwings, design elements have gone out to Japan or whatever, but built in Kansas City, I believe. Oh, is it? I think the plant's in Kansas City. I could be wrong, but I think they're all they're all made in Kansas City. So it's a badass thing. And 
the last thing I'll say, I know I've already said I'll say the last thing about it, but riding a old GL1000 around in really nice condition, it's weird. Old men are looking at me in a whole different way. (laughs) This is that bike that you can't get out of a gas station without someone asking you about it, right? Is that a 77? You go 78. I knew it, right? (laughs) It's absolutely one of those. We'll see how quickly I get really sick of that. But it's, in many ways, like we said, the CB750 to this day, still a perfectly serviceable, enjoyable, usable bike. You know, from 1975 till today, that's quite a feat. So I'm definitely not recommending that people go out and buy these because a lot of them have been abused and they are pretty complicated and finicky to work on. But it's an icon and it's an icon for a reason. And from the very beginning, the GL1000 was kind of badass. So I hate to rain on your parade just a little bit. But they stopped making them in America in 2010. Oh, okay. Well, still, all the GL1000s are made in America. Yes. Well, yeah, you're right, because Japan, uh, uh, Honda moved all of its like premium bikes to be manufactured in Japan, and now all the rest of their bikes are made in like Ty- Taiwan? I think it's Thailand, but... It could be Thailand, yeah. I say that with no confidence. Anyway. Uh, Oli, have you ridden any, any Goldwings, new ones or old ones? Uh, I have not. I highly recommend the new Goldwing. It is my dream bike at the moment. It could be my only bike. It does everything a motorcycle should do. It's unbelievable. But yeah, I'm gonna have to try it. Well, the the thing is, is that we've said a few times that Goldwings, at least a couple years ago, or you know, a year ago, were a little overpriced still. There were a lot of old dudes that bought a Goldwing brand new and for whatever reason still thought it was worth what they paid for it or 80% of what they paid for it 15, 18, 20 years on, right? And it's just not the case, you know, with a, a GL1500 or something. It's like, I, I can't give you $8,000 for your 22-year-old Goldwing, you know? Like, we just can't do mm-hmm. it. But those guys that bought them are dying at an astonishing rate, and their wives and relatives are starting to give them up super-duper cheap. That's what happened with this one. The, uh, the original owner died, and uh, the son-in-law sold it to me super duper cheap and I'm just kind of polishing money into it. I'll probably sell it at the end of the summer, but it's been riding well enough that I think I'm going to take it to circuit of the Americas. I'm going to ride it 2000 miles next month. I think because it's given me no reason not to trust it thus far. So there we go. Um, I think it's going to conclude this section of the show. Uh, Sweetie just walked off for a second, so. All right, we're back. So as we said at the top of the show, we're going to talk about waking yourself up for the riding season, not necessarily your bike. If you're looking for information on waking your bike up, I will direct you to literally 
any other podcast this week on motorcycles because <laughs> I'm sure they're all going to be doing it. It's kind of like that uh, that episode everyone has to do every year on uh, motorcycle yeah. gifts under $50, like as if everyone's <laughs> yeah. wives and girlfriends are listening. Not likely. <laughs> so, um, not likely. I, I like a few weeks ago was in a mad rush to do all the service on, on my super Hawk, uh, anticipating the weather coming. And so I, th- I then thought to myself, well, you know, we keep getting these random days and guys are pulling the bikes out and riding them and the bikes may or may not be ready. And then it occurred to me, are the riders ready? You know, it's like when you get the, uh, the first frost every year is when there's the most car accidents because people just aren't ready for it. You know, they're not in that mind frame for winter driving because the mind frame makes a huge difference. If it didn't, then we would just see crazy accidents all through the winter, but we don't. We see a spike at the very beginning and then people's minds become adapted to it. And I think the same happens with riding. People just get out there in a rush and you know problems happen so i don't know what what are your your thoughts on uh the best things people can do to prepare uh I, when you guys were talking about it i guess it was really interesting because over in california our our us we're kind of babies over here when, when we tell tell people it's cold or we don't ride because it's slightly raining um i'd probably say i see a lot of people just almost pick up where they left off with their riding. Is that you guys that? Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Because people tend to put the bike away and then they bring it out just however they left it and they you know, they do the same thing with, with their skills. Yeah, and and sometimes with their bike they they don't really check their tires. I mean we had a we had a intermediate riding cord one week ago about two weeks ago now. And one of the guys brought their bike and, and just completely cracking all over the tire. And I was just trying to figure out how he got there. So overall, just checking over your bike and making sure that before you pull it out of the garage, it's at least operational and functioning to jump out onto the street. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. And then, you know, um, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that you know, if you have a long break and you get back on your bike, you might not actually notice that the tires are low if you haven't checked it. And you don't mm-hmm. really have, you know, you, you're not really in tune with your bike in a way that you know when it's running right anymore because you don't have that daily or weekly experience of it anymore. Yeah, I feel the same way with, like, brand new tires. You don't You don't really know how crappy your old tires were until you get brand new tires. Yeah. So I have this theory and I would probably just have to call someone at state farm to confirm. This This is kind of one of those unknowable things, but I would bet that people making claims on damage to their bikes from just simply dropping it must spike this month of the year. I think there's a there's like a, a physicality with your motorcycle that people get out of touch with. So when I think about 
writing exercises, the first thing that I've seen people do in classes, I've seen them do in videos, and that I certainly had to do when I took the MSF course was just push the bike out onto the range and just physically move it around and get comfortable with the weight and where it tips and where the weight starts to get in on where it tips. A lot of people may think it's totally beneath them, but I was definitely doing it with the Goldwing a couple days ago because I was like, this is a brand new thing, and this thing just has characteristics that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And, you know, it just turned out that I needed to move it in and out of the garage a bunch of times anyway. But in the, the course of doing that, you know, I started becoming more just physically familiar with the bike. I, I don't know. Do you see a lot of value if people just kind of make it a ritual just to just physically move the bike around a bit before they take that first ride of the year? Absolutely. Um, there's a, another instructor in Southern California. Are you guys familiar with uh, Greg, uh, also known as Mother Jitsu? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he does, he does a video that was really good about just overall moving your bike and finding out that tipping point, the balance point, and literally just using one finger to keep your butt bike upright and walk around your motorcycle, not taking your hand or taking one hand off at a time just to kind of get comfortable with the weight. And I thought that was a good video that he put out there for, for people to play with literally in their garage. Yeah. You know, it's a, uh, people talk about heavy bikes and their strength and seat height and, I, 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 it's easy for me to, you know, say, well, stop being such a wuss, learn how to balance the bike. But I don't know. I, at the end of the day, I still keep returning to that thought. If you just simply learn to balance the bike, a lot of other things can be overcome. So, yeah, I, I, I think uh, a lot of people, if when they're not familiar with the weight and the balance of their bike, that's where you get things like you come to a stop sign and, you know, you didn't really, you, you fallen out of touch with how quickly the brakes might come in. You know, I think towards mm -hmm. the, or the beginning of the season, we've all had that stop at a stop sign where you thought you were going to glide up smoothly, but then it kind of jerked to a stop at the end and a foot came off the ground and it was okay, but it easily could not have been okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do see that as kind of, um, you know, well, it's like if you have somebody who's never ridden a motorcycle before, they come into a class and, you know, especially nowadays, if they've never even driven a manual car, you know, to start off with, first they got to move the bike around and that's maybe a bit of a struggle. Then they have to start doing the clutch exercises and they'll stall it a few times and then they'll start riding it around, and these things will slowly come together. Then they have to shift, and then, you know, it. you start building up all these things. But each one is kind of a big deal, and then it has to get processed, and, you know, you you get it into your head, and then it's, it starts to become an unconscious thing. And there are a lot of those basic skills where if you don't practice them for a while, they're not all that unconscious anymore and they become more manual conscious tasks. And I guess, you know, the more of those that pile up, the more likely you do something stupid, like pull your bike out and then pull up to a stop sign and then just drop your bike or 
something worse could happen because more of your mental focus was on that than, you know, checking your blind spot or seeing if the guy to the right of you is going to merge into you or not. Yeah, I think you know th- there's there's a couple things to be uh to be conscious of. One is you don't want to get into a situation where you get hurt, you cause an accident with a car, but even the minor stuff, just dropping your bike at the beginning of the season, what a fucking bummer. You know, you're yeah. so excited all like, you know, as you as you anticipate the weather changing and you're like, oh, I've got this bike in the garage. It's so cool. But just the world doesn't know yet. I'm going to get out there and everything's going to be awesome. And then 10 minutes in, you drop your bike. Oh, that is so bad. You know, because like yeah. emotionally it hurts so much. Like it's almost worse than totaling the bike because if you total the bike you're like well you know insurance will pay out i'll get another one or whatever but you know just having to yeah limp to the dealership with a broken mirror or a busted uh, brake lever yeah having to lie to the parts guy yeah i mean you know my brother you know somebody my cousin dropped it or you know my co- my cousin pulled into the you know the garage and like broke it around Christmas time. I'm just getting around to fixing this mirror now. Yeah, you, you got to make up a story for the parts guy. Oh, it's the worst. But <laughs> okay, uh, so um, I've gotten this sense from talking to various instructors that really the heart of not the heart, but a, a big focus of motorcycle training is slow speed maneuvers. Because I've got this theory that. I mean, not racing, but most things are pretty easy to do going fast on a bike. It's doing them slow. Or it's how can you possibly, if you can't do it slow, or if you know you can do it slow, then you can definitely you know do it a little bit quicker because you got more of the bike working for you. Like The more you take the engine out of the equation, the more you are a bigger part of the equation. It's kind of what it seems to make sense to me. So I feel like someone's slow speed maneuvers aren't exactly, but they're often a pretty good measurement of how good a rider someone is. I don't know if any of that makes sense. It's just kind of my, the no, yeah, mess yeah. in my head. Um, I think kind of what that stems from is just the overall confidence in your skill as the rider and then your comfortability with your motorcycle is you kind of share a, a better bond and you kind of see people when they start riding, they already know they can do certain things because of how many times they've done that same thing. And, um, you know, whether that's low speed maneuver, whether that's going through the same corner over and over and over again, and just building the confidence, knowing what to look out for, how, how much to let your clutch out, roll on your throttle, smoother on the brakes, more pressure on the brakes, and be able to just, you know, bounce back and forth. It's just the repetitiveness that I think certain certain people miss out. I had a had a motor officer on my podcast and uh one of the things I asked him was how many times does he do U turns or practice U turns? And I was expecting, you know, some big number and he replied with today? Uh. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> I mean I didn't even think about that. Uh yeah, how many times did you do it today? And he said probably twenty. And even as an instructor, I mean, we practice, but to do it every single day, you know, sometimes 
to be completely honest, there are times where I'll go weeks at a time without ever jumping on my bike, and I just kind of have that almost like laboratory mentality. Like, you guys have dogs? Uh, not Certainly for a while, like but... Yeah. Um, my, my lab at home, the moment I walk through that door, she's shaking her tail, she's jumping up and down, she just wants to be pet. And, like, I have that same, like, I'm, sh- I'm shaking my body, I want to ride this motorcycle and we forget, you know, basic stuff. And those are the things that can end up getting us in trouble, you know, just not paying attention, being too excited to ride. Yeah, the the, the mental discipline, that's that's a big one. You, you you get you get excited to ride. It's the the first day with nice weather, and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna get on the bike and tear it up. Yep. And yeah, the having the discipline to go. You know what? I don't know how rusty I am, and just to keep it easy anyway. I mean, I guess if we knew the answer to that, we'd be able to stem like eighty percent of motorcycle accidents, but. Yeah, do you yeah. do you have like anything that you that you've ever said to people or people have said to you that's helpful in uh in kind of holding that one back? Um what's that? Just the over like mentality wise or Well, you just just that um you know the 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 uh kind of controlling yourself to resist the temptation to 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 ride a little faster to to you know to mm. stop yourself from pushing limits like on day one of the year right yeah um I think one of the things I've heard recently was uh, a student who was in one of our classes said you know there are riders who are going to crash and there are riders who haven't crashed just yet and uh, it was interesting to have him say that to some of the class when we were going through introductions. And he was solely in the class as a refresher because a, a previous, um, I think previous year, maybe one or two years ago, uh, he, he went down and he, he kind of had the same mentality. Like he was so excited to go ride that he just, he was getting too aggressive. And so he made it a point every year to go through some formal training when he has that itch, to, to jump back onto his bike. And that's his training for the year, which was pretty cool. Pretty cool to hear that from him. That is. Okay. And so I was talking about the slow speed maneuvers and that kind of being a good judge. Um, it, it, uh, this kind of ties into the, the police officer, as you said, just like practicing things daily or practicing on your own. Um, it's not too hard to find an empty parking lot at some point. Eddie's uh, Moto Jitsu videos are, are certainly great ones to look at. Um, yeah. But I, um, and who is uh who does the the YouTube channel? Who's the guy that has uh, the app with all the practice things on it? Um, oh god, he's out of Texas. MC Rider. MC Rider. There we go. Yeah. MC so Rider. Yep. There, there's there's those guys. Um, do you have like a source that you go to to find things to practice or 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 exercises you recommend? Like people kind of start the year with. Um, I've always gone to let me make sure I get the website right uh, conepatterns.com okay yes no so it is literally gives I think maybe two or thirty or forty different cone patterns ranging from basic and easy to extreme 
and uh, it's, it's just it's fun. You just pick for me. I pick one or two that I want to play with for the week or you know for the next two weeks, just depending on how difficult it is, and just change it up. Right? It's just kind of one of those weekly or monthly challenges you might be able to do before jumping on your bike and not really leaving. I guess until until you, until you tell yourself you're gonna beat the exercise or draw the time or yeah, there's a, there's a couple different things in there, and that's that's the one that I like using. Um, I would probably us. do these with chalk. I don't know that I have the patience to set up all of these codes. <laughs> <laughs> it gets pretty intense for sure. I mean, we're we're pretty fortunate to have a range that has a couple of markings to help uh, not measure out some of these things. Right. Um, but yeah, chalk or uh, some form of I, I've, I've seen people cut tennis balls in half. Rather than bringing a bunch of cones with them, they bring a couple tennis balls that are cut in half and put it on the ground. Oh, that's good. Uh, or going you... going to some uh, sporting goods store and grabbing some soccer cones that are tiny and transportable. I'm looking up just the standard parking space dimensions to kind of help people out if they're trying to do this. Um, so. Yeah, the average parking space is about like nine or ten feet wide and about eighteen feet long, which is larger than you would have thought it was. So if anyone's like out at a parking lot trying to measure some things out, just keep that in mind. That'll give you a pretty good idea of how to measure out some of these things. I like this uh this conepatterns.com. This is crazy. This is a lot of I mean, yeah, this goes all the way up to that stuff that looks like, I mean, there's one, <laughs> the, these cone patterns are kind of named like uh, some of the, the crazier ski runs here in Colorado. There's one called Bleeding Ulcers. <laughs> and then there's Bleeding Ulcers Impossible, but then Tiger Den and Crazy Horse, like these are... <laughs> but yeah, this goes straight up to almost the uh the competition stuff that you see. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and actually that's what they they, they actually pulled information from is uh I, I I believe one of the guys um in the motor uh unit started to compile some of these and just made it a public page for other people to start putting more in or adding more here and there. And uh I am going to one of those competitions in August and uh, in Nevada. That'd be my first time actually participating in one of those, which I'm pretty stoked about. It's funny telling people that you're stoked about riding around in a parking lot and doing cone patterns, but that's what gets me excited. Do you know when in August? Like at the end of um, August? Or? How's the date? Looks like... June, come on, I guess. No, it's June. So the one in June. Oh. June 3rd through the 5th. It's the uh, 17th Annual Extreme Motor Officer Training Challenge. Well, that's too bad. I was going to be, I'm going to be in Vegas in August for a couple days. I thought, oh, oh, okay. Ah. <laughs> but whatever. All right. Um, I'll, keep, I'll keep you posted, though. If anything does pop up, yeah. I'll shoot you guys that, uh, that stuff over. Yeah, I've always wanted to try my hand at some of these things and just never really put it together. But, I mean, 
the the range that the uh that the local dealership uses is just empty 90% of the time. It I can totally mm. just go there and do things. So I really should. Although I don't know that the 70s Goldwing is the right bike for it. <laughs> Although I mean, I mean dad does have an Electroglide which, you know, is kind of the 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 weapon of choice for these things. Yeah, I guess some rogue glide or uh, some and, um, the uh, road king. Road king is a popular one. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, just getting back a little bit to the you know the waking yourself up for the the season stuff. Um, you know, we we talked a bit about the mind frame stuff. Uh, you know, resisting that urge to go super fast. We kind of talked about getting familiar with the bike. We talked about you know doing these exercises, riding through cones. Something that I like that you do on the show or seem to do on the show a lot is, is, is preparing the mindset. You, you got, you seem to uh, definitely on episodes I've heard lately talked a lot about um, people being receptive to information. Right. Mm, yeah. And it's almost like uh, that you, you can study it, you know, as much as you want, but people kind of have to be, open to it or not. If they are open to it, then you can identify that they are and find different ways to communicate with them. Right. So, you know, you may have to shock someone into being careful and taking precautions or not. Um, You know, there's sort of a, a Zen approach one might need to have, you know, that I think is important, but have, uh, let's see how to phrase this. This is a weird one. Um, this this is going to seem like it has nothing to do with this, but it'll come around pretty quickly. Uh, I was talking to Fred about um, the Matrix, the, the film The Matrix, and uh, and simulation theory and whatever the other day. And I was talking about how it's not really important whether you believe in simulation theory or not. It's it's really more of just a a philosophical toy that was invented to kind of remind you that you don't know what you don't know. Right. So some people might think yeah. they're really, really excellent writers, but it may just be that you haven't taken the class that lets you realize just how bad you actually are. Right. There, you may think, oh, well, I'm a totally competent writer because everything that I try to do turns out really well. But mm-hmm. you're just completely unaware there's this whole level of things that people can do with bikes that you can't even begin to touch. And I feel I uh, I feel like every year that's kind of like reset for a lot of people, you know? Um, I mean, you can see it if you go back and, you know, we read reviews of old bikes all the time and people will talk about how amazing the braking and suspension on the, the GL 1000 was in 1975 and here I am today to tell you that it's kind of a death trap machine. If you're not used to what 1978 brakes and suspension were, you know, you will find yeah. yourself in trouble in traffic. You need to be aware that the normal cushion you leave, like make that way larger if you're on an older bike. So uh, as it applies to, you know, starting the season every year, um, is there is there like a quick like a quick exercise that um you know of that might seem simple but can kind of like let someone know quickly like oh maybe I'm not as good as I thought 
Um, I mean, there's nothing really quick about it. I, I think it just comes down to when you jump on your bike, they're the first couple miles or the first, um, really, the, once you jump on your bike, there's going to be some familiarity and there's going to be some confusion. And generally, I know for me, if I don't practice something, whether it's a week or a month or a couple of days, I feel rusty. I feel confused. You know, why, why did I not get this down the way I should have got it down? And as a rider, you almost kind of have to have a little bit of a, an ego check. So you might, you might think you're a really good rider. And you probably are. Most people are, are fairly good at riding. I mean, I've, I've had riders in the class who are not for 5, 30, 40 plus years. And this is the first time they're taking motorcycle training because the officer pulled them over and said, you have to go through this class, otherwise we're impounding your motorcycle. And so it's not that they can't ride well. We don't know what we don't know until we know it, right? Right. And, uh, you know, as any rider can go through training, that's not going to help you. It's the everyday stuff that you do. It's the every ride stuff that you do. It's the how alert or how sensitive am I am on my ride to breakfast or my ride with the buddies. Or if you do have... Um, a pretty scary situation happened on your motorcycle, whether that's the first time you jumped onto the year or, you know, coming into a turn too fast. I like to kind of point out like there's, there's rider A who has that experience and then continues to ride the same way. And then rider B would say, whoa, what just happened? I can't let that happen again because that could have been bad. And that could have been worse than just me, you know, living to talk another day. So I started... Uh, this week on that, on that new bike I just got, I did two mm-hmm. things because I was trying to think, I was thinking about this subject and I thought, okay, you know, don't just talk about it, do it. So I thought, what are, what were two things that I could kind of come up with that aren't magic bullets, but are pretty close that would be universal things pretty much anyone could do and maybe should do as they're just getting the bike out for the first time. And I thought, okay, I should determine some sort of tightness of a circle that I should be able to ride the bike around in, at least have the the minimum control and familiarity of this bike to just do this this tight circle of whatever distance that is. And I kind of settled on about like a parking space and a half. I thought, okay, anyone should reasonably be able to do this. And then I thought, I'm going to make my first ride my commute to work. And I didn't have to work that day, but I did that ride anyway because I thought, well, this is something I'll be somewhat familiar with, right? I do, yeah. You know, this is this is a this is a path I always have to travel, and I travel it in the car, I travel it on the bike, I travel it on different bikes, so it's a good gauge of where I'm at, and because I've got familiarity with it. You know, I'll be able to anticipate things before things go really wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've I've talked on the on the show before about how every time I ride to work, when I ride to work, I try to ride the perfect ride. I try to always be in the absolute the absolute best lane position. I'll think to myself, well, 
what are the pros and cons of this lane position? You know, and when should I be breaking for this turn? Where are all the different spots that I can be looking for? Have I checked my mirrors? You know, every thirty seconds as I've been going down this piece of road, just all those things. And I've tried to ride the perfect ride to work for years, and I've never actually done it. I've always thought, "Ooh, I could have just done that one little thing so slightly differently." Right? So. You know, it's one of those things where 100% is theoretical. And, you know, if I can ride and go, okay, well, today I kind of rode it at this level. And, you know, so so to make it my first ride, I thought that's a pretty good one that I might start recommending to people. You know, even if you don't have to work that day, make your first ride, just go to work and back. Make it your commute. I mean, unless it's like a four-hour commute. I don't know if you want to do that, but... um, yeah, uh, do, do you see any value in those? Oh, 100%. The, um, I think while you were talking about that, it, it what kind of came into mind was like a, a you versus you mentality, right? It's not really about the other people riding out there, those people driving out there, the other riders, whoever it is. It's just a personal evaluation or competition with yourself. And when you can start looking at, like, I'm just doing this for me. I just want to ride better i just want to be more aware and uh there's a quote from i think it was msf where they say something along the lines of the more you know the better it gets right and uh with that it just it just you build your confidence level knowing what you're capable of what you need to work on and so something like clutch or throttle control just seeing how smoothly can you roll on the throttle how smoothly can you roll off the throttle might be a challenge for some people that love hammering down on the throttle and you know getting going um clutch control i know on my bike with that hydraulic clutch it's pretty difficult sometimes when i'm taking a tight u-turn or tight figure eight um because my hand gets tired that i don't let the clutch out as smoothly as i want to and those turns become a little bit more jagged versus smooth uh, something like braking, you know, just using your brakes on your motorcycle coming up to a stop sign. I mean, I got three stop signs on the way out of my community area before I jump onto the highway, and first stop sign is a smooth stop for me. Second stop sign, I check if there's anybody behind me, and I try to do a quick stop. I try to really utilize my brakes to see, okay, haven't done that in a while. Let me, let me use that. And the third one you know, go a little bit faster, a little bit um, more of a quick stop, emergency braking. That way, by the time I jump out onto the freeway and I'm commuting to work, for whatever reason, if that car does cut in front of me, it's not the first time I did the quick stop. It's my third time I did it. I'm familiar with it. So just picking certain things here and there to, to practice and tell yourself what you're practicing and how you want to practice it. And you don't have to always go in the parking lot. Uh, it, it could be exactly what you said on your way to work and something you're familiar with. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of practicing the emergency braking. There's a there, there's a few roads where I know there's nothing but just almost a complete mile in between farm fields around here, mm. and I'll just go out on those roads and, I mean, occasionally practice wheelies, but often just practicing just a quick emergency stop. It's, yeah. it's, it's a funny thing. Um, 
it, it's it's a, it for a lot of people I think it's a side of their bike they've just never seen before, you know. Mm-hmm. And just to get as you said, it's not the first time; it's the third time that knowing what that feeling is of the front tire just about to break loose or actually breaking a little bit loose for a second and then you know recovering yeah. from it so it it becomes a an automatic nature to just adjust your fingers you know you, that internal abs that's yeah i i love that one but i i don't know if i recommend people do that on day one maybe, but maybe in the first <laughs> week you know um, yeah i mean everybody kind of already has that that internal um, gauge of where they're at on their on their motorcycle skills, you know what they're uh, what they expect themselves to do versus what they're actually going to do. And I, I tell a lot of people don't don't push yourself and you ride your own ride. Yeah, if you're riding with a group of people or you, you're riding for the first time or you're riding after a long winter, just take your time. I mean, you think about how long you haven't been riding, and now jumping out into the street. I mean, you got a whole nother season ahead of you. You don't want to make it short. Yeah, I, I should I should conclude by saying, you know, if you're an awesome rider, by all means, you know, be awesome. But maybe don't yeah. try to drag knee on you know the first day you bring the bike out, right? Just yeah. hold it back a little bit. Give yourself a little time to ease into it. You know, it's 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 not you know the first the first day of spring's not the best day to be pulling dank woolies. No, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, as big a fan of wheelies as I am, just not day one. So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's that yeah. That really sums everything up, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> cool. Well, uh let's see, you're at about an hour and a half, which is a pretty good length. Um I I guess here at the end, uh, I just want to remind everyone that this is Oli Seagraves we're talking to, and his show is the Moto XP or Moto Experience or maybe even Moto Vibes if you feel like Googling. I'm sure you'll locate the show through through one of those searches, and it's a great show. So all of our listeners should listen to Oli and his his other sh- his show. Um, let's see here. Uh, is there anything else that we want to wrap up here? Um, we should mention a couple corrections and omissions from other shows. Uh, we were corrected on the fact that you will be able to watch MotoGP on NBC Sports this season. Although you'll only be able to watch the, the GP. You won't get qualifying practices or Moto3 or Moto2. Yeah, but it's better than nothing. And then no matter how you're trying to watch it, you won't get GP, as you'll already know from Qatar. I'm sure. I hope you know. So that sucks. But, hey, well, no, we can't say anything about Joe Roberts because the race hasn't happened. Oh, it's killing me. I can't wait till tomorrow to find out. Okay. So uh, we were corrected on something else, too. Um, oh, Brian Honeycutt, um, be, you know, fast-becoming good friend of the show and constant commentator and we love him has uh decided to uh let us know that we're crazy for not thinking that converting dirt bikes for track duty isn't a great idea and he and i went back and forth and i did concede that a modern 450 probably can make a great track bike but i'm sticking to my guns 
that the Nordwest will not make a great track bike. <laughs> um, and he, there were some other things that he wanted to, he corrected us on the past that I haven't mentioned, but anyway, uh, yeah, that really wraps up the show, I think. So here at the end, we're just going to remind everybody to leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes, wherever you listen to the show, make sure it's five stars and say something nice. We got a, a nasty review last week, which was hilarious because the nastiest thing they could say was the show has a, uh, a Jeremy Clarkson vibe. So, you know, if you want to compare us to the all-time most successful automotive <laughs> broadcaster, I guess, oh, you got us pretty good, man. And then uh, with that, we can remind everyone to stay safe, stay tuned, and keep fighting the dragon. Let's run the outro. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my boat. Side. Mm-hmm. Cold. 